The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people, live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. you doing? I'm Leslie Marshall. Thank you for joining us on this wonderful Thursday. I hope you were enjoying the warm weather. You just, uh, you've heard all over the place that, you know, if you don't believe climate change is real, then how come we're having record highs and record warms when it comes to uh, winter? I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back. Only true democracy and talk. We're not going to be talking climate change today. We have some guests joining us. Very excited about this. Some great guests joining us. And first up is Philip Lewis. Philip is a journalist from Detroit, Michigan. Currently, he's the front page editor at the Huffington Post, at HuffPost. He's co-author of Schoolhouse Wreck, the Betsy DeVos story an inside look into the life of the current U.S. Secretary of Education. And he was also a 2017 recipient of the prestigious Paul Miller Washington Reporting Fellowship. One of the reasons I invited uh, Philip on, I used to write for the Huffington Post, and uh, as front page editor for HuffPost, um, Philip has written some great things, and he's written some things on African-American Black History Month. Uh, Philip Lewis is African-American as well and can provide a perspective that I, as a white chick, cannot. Uh, and we want to talk to him today um, as we are into uh, the first week of Black History Month, um, especially in light of all the discussions that surround race that go on, not just in this month, but each and every day uh, in this nation uh, when it comes uh, especially to politics and especially uh, to our the uh, president uh, attempted to frame himself recently, as you've seen online, you've seen on TV, you've heard on the radio, on streams, on podcast, or on Streamcast, as we're new members of the NRM Streamcast. Um, he has attempted to frame himself as a savior to people of color, and a savior of people to color of color, especially black people. He has done this during the State of the Union address, um, and he has done this everywhere. We have with us now uh, Philip Lewis, journalist from Detroit, Michigan, and currently the front page editor uh, of HuffPost. Uh, Philip, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us. I did read all of your bio before we got you on, I promise. Thank you for being with us this afternoon. No, thank you. I, I, I did hear it before, <laughs> before we lost touch. Oh, good, good. Yeah, that happens. I always think I always think Republicans are after me when uh, my my lines go down. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, we're into the first week of Black History Month, and I was just talking about how the president has attempted to frame himself as a savior to people of color, um, especially black people among those people of color, African Americans. He did it during the State of the Union. He does it almost ever up every opportunity he gets when a microphone's in front of him, as well as with his tweets. Um, Philip, I share. Uh, with listeners when we were reconnecting with you uh, that you are an African-American. You've written about uh, Black History Month. Uh, you have a lot to say. Is Donald Trump a savior to people of color? Because the way Donald Trump talks, you would think that black people have never had it so good in America except for him and that he deserves the credit for this. 
Yeah, well, well, Trump is Trump is a master of optics, you know, and I think that the State Union was a pretty much was pretty much like just proof of that. Um, I, I don't think that he's a savior. I don't think that he's a savior to people of color. Uh, the president is considered to be a racist by more than eighty percent of Black Americans, according to uh, the Washington Post, a, a recent report from them. So I, I, I think it's probably safe to say that's not true, even you know, no matter how much you'd like to think that. Yeah, I love your piece, by the way, and that's why uh, I wanted to have you on the program, especially uh, with Black History Month. I'm a white chick. You're an African-American male. You have definitely a different and better perspective on this. Your article's great, uh, entitled Trump, Famous Birther Frames Himself as Hero to People of uh, Color. Um, let's look back at some of the things that Trump has done. Uh, we can't forget what he did and continues to have the opinion uh, held about the Central Park Five, despite the fact that those are innocent individuals. He also has a real estate company, as you point out in your article, that was sued not once but twice for not renting to black people uh, in the past. Um, right. And and that and this stuff comes up again when he claims credit for having historically low run unemployment among people of color and cites blacks among those people of color and also cites the declining rates of black poverty in the black community. Um, are some of these numbers, our lower unemployment rate, which, by the way, is across the board, um, our declining rates of poverty across the board, uh, uh, white poverty, black poverty, uh, Asian, uh, Latino, um, are these things forgotten that he has done, uh, his dealings with real estate, comments he has made about the continent of Africa um, and the countries therein, and, of course, the Central Park Five and just these other examples is all forgotten and is all forgiven simply because y- y- you have some good percentages with unemployment. No, I, I, w- I won't say everything is forgiven just because I think that what people misunderstand and, and what he's banking on people misunderstanding is that um, historically crime rates have been going down. You know, before, prior to his presidency, uh, these, these rates, uh, crime rates have been going down. Um, job opportunities have been increasing just like, Across the board, uh, for for everyone, um, way prior to his, uh, to his uh, administration. So it's, it's been. I think he's kind of banking on people not uh, not really kind of realizing that. And, and what he, like I said before, he's kind of a master of optics. So when he touts people, um, to the state, you know, touts his guests in front of people for the State of the Union, um, to kind of promote his and push his uh, policies that he thinks African Americans are are interested in, like school choice or. Um, or the opportunity zones, he's kind of hoping that people aren't really paying attention. But I think people are. And I think that the poll that I was just talking about kind of shows that people are still listening. Uh, I remember when people uh, were highly upset with him calling Baltimore a, a rat-infested, you know, rat-infested city. People don't forget things like that. Yeah, Baltimore. Thank you. There's just uh, so many. I can't even keep up. You uh, right. quote the president in your article, quote, wealthy people and companies are pouring money into poor neighborhoods or areas that haven't seen investment in many decades, creating jobs, energy and excitement. This is the first time that these deserving communities have seen anything like this. It's all working. Um, if it's all working, uh, then why uh, does the president remain so unpopular with black voters? He's considered to be a racist by more than 80% of black Americans, and that's according to a Washington Post-Ipsos poll that just was conducted last month. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 think people can, I think people are able to look past kind of like his rhetoric. You know, they're, they're kind of like, they're, well, rather, they're not able to kind of look past it. You know, the things that he says, um, they, they resonate with people. And people, you know, 
they don't like what they're saying, right? And they don't like what they're saying. They don't uh, they don't appreciate the words that he's saying because black people, of course, like we know when things are racist. Like we know, like we have a pretty good eye for things like that, you know. And so um, I think that this poll proves, you know, a, a lot of this poll proves that people are kind of seeing him for what he is, you know. And what also what also helps is that people are less afraid to use the word racist, like in the media, uh, newspapers, people are less afraid to use it um, because it's just more of a, a thing that we are able to kind of use now and then and without being, um, you know, flogged for it, right? So um, I think that people are, are just, are, are kind of, they're able to see what, what for him for what he is. The president has talked about this before. You mentioned in your article the tax brace that Republicans passed in 2017. Uh, the president feels that these tax breaks created opportunity zones, and those uh, these tax breaks were supposed to encourage investment uh, in poor areas. But the New York Times reported that the program recreated a wave of developments financed by and built for the wealthiest Americans. Uh, I've seen this here. In, I live in Los Angeles, in Watts, Compton, South mm-hmm. Central. You see high-end apartment buildings uh, being built. Uh, their, their profits are not being taxed. And if anything, it's pushing some of these people out, which on paper makes it look like the area is improved, but it hasn't improved for the people. Am I correct in that? Yeah, no, I think that's true. I mean, I, I live in Washington, uh, Washington, D.C., which is you can see a stark, like the stark reality of uh, gentrification in this effect. On people, and so I think that's that's true. Um, a lot of the a lot of the development, a lot of the new buildings, new apartments, all these things are really they're they don't seem as though they're for the people that are from there and that are actually that live in those communities. And a lot of them are being pushed out. Congresswoman Maxine Waters from the state I'm in, Democrat from California, said that Trump exploited the most vulnerable people in his speech. He was he he has exploited people of color. As a man of color, would you agree with Congresswoman Waters' assessment? Yeah, I would I would I would agree with that. Um, I, I would agree with that because it's it's just the things that he's been doing, uh, and and for that state of the union, like you can pretty much clearly see what he was trying to do. As far as using um, black people as props, like the the it was just really kind of st- stunning to see how he awarded a presidential uh, medal of freedom to Rush Limbaugh on the you know in the same on the, in the same token um, honor you know the, the Tuskegee Airmen the 100 year old Tuskegee Airmen uh, for his for his exploits and his um. And the things that he's done, it, it was just really kind of weird to watch the whole thing, you know, and how it was going, especially during Black History Month. Absolutely. Um, we, uh, I, I just want to give you the last word. Um, we have just a minute left. So uh, what would you like to leave our listeners with today, Philip? Yeah, I just want people to be aware, you know, that his uh, kind of his reelect, not just this, but his reelection campaign. Uh, where he talked about um, the nonviolent offender, Alice Marie Johnson, that he, he worked with um, Kim Kardashian to free the, uh, the nonviolent offender. Uh, he, this is kind of all his, his plans to how he's going to court black voters uh, in, in 2020, um, prom- making promises they can't keep, um, 
talking about uh, the support that he has for the black community. Uh, this is how he's going to try to sell his reelection. And so I want people to just kind of be aware of that. Thank you very much uh, for being with us. Thank you, Philip. Uh, you can follow Philip on Twitter and please do at Phil underscore Lewis. That's at capital P H I L underscore capital L E W I S underscore. And the website for HuffPost, where you can read his great pieces, HuffPost, including the one we just talked about, HuffPost.com. We're going to take a break. When we come back, another great guest is up. Who is it? We'll stick around and find out. I'm Leslie Marshall. Back after this. We're back. You hear the change and the clanging and the song Money. And we're going to talk money. One of my favorite economists, Dr. Robert Shapiro, who is chairman of Sonicon. He's an economic, it's an economic advisory firm. He's also a senior fellow of the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University. Now, he is internationally known as an economist, and he has advised, among others, President Bill Clinton, Vice President Al Gore Jr., British Prime Ministers Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, and then when they were senators, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. He was also Undersecretary of Commerce for Economic Affairs in the Clinton administration. I learned a lot from him. I know you will as well. Dr. Shapiro, good to have you with us. Uh, good to hear hear your voice, sir. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us. Uh, good afternoon, Leslie. It's a pleasure to talk to you again. Uh, I want to talk uh, a bit about uh, tax reform. Um, there is a brass ring for a Democratic presidential candidate that you have written about uh, in a piece entitled A Fair and Winning Tax Reform for Democrats, Broad Payroll Tax Relief Financed by Wealthy Americans. And you write the brass ring for a Democratic presidential candidate is a plan that appeals to people's sense of social justice, and to their self-interest. And you talk about the last two Democrats who won the White House and how they pulled off this feat. And, and tell us, how did they do that? And how do you appeal to people's sense of justice, social justice, and to their self-interest? Because we are seeing people socially more liberal-minded, but economically, uh, they're, they're more fiscally conservative, it would seem. And this is regardless of a person's a Democrat or Republican. So how do you pull this off and how did the last two Democrats who won the White House do this? Well, both Bill Clinton and Barack Obama promised middle class tax cuts, um, which they would pay for by raising taxes on higher income people. Uh, the And it was appealing both as a matter of social policy and for people's self-interest. However, uh, in recent years, really in recent decades, uh, there have been so many reductions in the income tax that income tax relief uh, affects um, barely half of the country. Forty-five percent of all Americans are now off the income tax because we have large uh, exemptions for ch- uh, for children. We have large standard deductions, um, and so as a result, uh, about forty five percent of the country no longer um, owes any income tax. Uh, but everybody who works owes payroll taxes. And um, so it makes sense first to focus tax relief not on the income tax but on the payroll tax. Uh, now, then the question is, what's a fair way to pay for it? Now, we've heard a lot about uh, wealth taxes. 
uh, and we've got at least two candidates whose campaigns are really organized around promises that would be paid for by wealth taxes. That's both Senators Warren and Senator Sanders. Um, frankly, that's not very realistic. Uh, you know, the um, more than half of the companies in America are privately owned. And, you know, when the owners of one of those companies passes away, it takes the IRS and accountants months and months and months to figure out what the taxable value is of those companies. We have no idea. What we do know is that um, we get we tax income earned off of capital, that's dividends and interest primarily, at a much lower rate than income earned by working. So the fair way to do this is to reduce payroll taxes and pay for it by uh, taxing capital income at the exact same rates as labor income. Okay, hang on and hold that thought, Dr. Shapiro. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back and hear more about that. You read my mind because I was going to ask you where you stood on the wealth tax because a lot of wealthy who are very philanthropic and believe millionaires and billionaires should pay their fair share don't think the wealth tax is the way to do it. We'll be back. I'm Leslie Marshall. We are back. I'm Leslie Marshall. Our guest is Chairman of Sonicon, Senior Fellow of McDonough School of Business at Georgetown, and... He was Undersecretary of Commerce for Economic Affairs in the Clinton administration. Dr. Robert Shapiro joins us, and we're talking about a fair and winning tax reform for Democrats, broad payroll tax relief financed by wealthy Americans. Before the break, Dr. Shapiro, you were talking about how the wealth tax just would not work. Um, these are sound bites and headlines and phrases that voters love to hear, especially very progressive, the progressive and, and more liberal for progressive faction of the Democratic Party. When Elizabeth Warren talks about this, corporations bad, all the rest of the people good, corporations, you know, buy politicians and make our lives hell. I mean, the list goes on. Uh, before the break, you were talking about what uh, Democrats need to do. Um, and one of the things that I'm hearing from you is is on a fiscal level as well, to present a more moderate and centrist economic plan than some of these extreme far-left plans that include things like Medicare for All or the wealth tax. Am I correct in that assumption, Dr. Shapiro? Well, you know, we're, we're right now running an annual deficit of a trillion dollars while the economy is growing at a reasonable pace. Uh, this is a recipe for a financial crisis in the future, uh, in the near future, if we um, significantly expand that even further and try to imagine what would happen if the economy to the deficit, if the economy slowed more. Uh, the, the fact is that there is a limit to how much U.S. and global investors will invest in U.S. Treasury securities, which are the way we finance these deficits. And, you know, I have to mention that one of the most important criteria that foreign investors use 
when they're investing in another country is how strong is the rule of law? Which is to say, if they have a problem and they have to go to court, how much can they rely on a neutral rule of law to judge that dispute? And if you countries with weak rules of law get less investment and consequently can't run huge deficits, well, that's where the United States is headed right now under President Trump, uh, who has clearly um, weakened in significant ways the rule of law by uh, directing his attorney general to selectively investigate his political enemies and directing the attorney general to ease off on investigating and prosecuting his political friends. But that's kind of a little bit uh, off the topic of broad payroll tax relief. Um, I ran the numbers on this, and we could exempt the first $10,000 in wages and salaries from the payroll tax, which would save an average household over $1,000 a year. And we could pay for it simply by taxing um, capital income at the same rates as labor income. Uh, the payroll tax relief would cost um, um, about $144 billion a year, and the uh, taxing uh, capital income at the same rate as labor income would raise $153 billion a year. So we can do this without affecting the deficit, give meaningful tax relief to everyone who works, and ensure that um, those whose income doesn't come from working, but rather from collecting the um, interest and dividends on their investments, uh, are paying uh, the same rate, uh, the same tax rate on that income as everybody else pays on their wages and salaries. Uh, um, also, uh, d I definitely want to know for people that may not understand, but how is that different? Either way, you're taxing the rich. Is it different than the wealth tax um, be because of the way it is done, because it is done uh, with employment and because it is uh, technically um, taxing in, in a different way, which is um, not changing right. the corporate rate, uh, but uh, taxing profits? Well, you know, the, the difference between this and a wealth tax is that we already keep track of all interest, dividends, and capital gains, whether it comes from public companies or from privately held companies. All of, all of, all that information is collected every year. It's sent to the IRS, and then you have to pay taxes on it. It's just you pay at a reduced rate. Um, we don't have any comprehensive data on the value of most forms of wealth, what someone's art collection is worth, what their jewelry is worth, what their cars are worth. We don't even have very up-to-date data on what people's homes are worth. 
And we certainly don't have data on the value of privately held companies, like the Trump Organization, for example. Uh, so if we want to tax the wealth of the top 1% or half a percent or whatever percent, uh, or top 5% or 10% of Americans, uh, the way to do it is not to look at, try to figure, not to try to figure out how much wealth they have, but just tap in to the in annual income they earn from their wealth. Thank you. Uh, we appreciate that, Doctor, and uh, look forward to speaking with you again. Uh, I'm Leslie Marshall. We have another guest coming up, so hang on. That was Dr. Robert Shapiro, Chairman of Sonicon and uh, a senior fellow at the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University. He was Under Secretary of Commerce for Economic Affairs in the Clinton administration. The website for his company is Sonicon.com, capital S O N E C O N. Follow him on Twitter at Rob Shapiro, capital R O B, capital S. H-A-P-I-R-O. I'm Leslie Marshall, back with you and another guest right after this. We're back. I'm Leslie Marshall, last guest in this hour. Joining us is Colonel Cedric Layton. He is founder and president of Cedric Layton Associates. They're a strategic risk and leadership consultancy that serves global companies and organizations. He founded it in 2020, but that was after he served in the U.S. Air Force for 26 years as an intelligence officer and attained the rank of colonel. Colonel Layton can also be seen regularly on CNN, where he is a military analyst. And the colonel's Twitter handle is at Cedric Layton. That's at capital C E D R I C capital L-E-I-G-H-T-O-N. The website, CedricLayton.com. More than a pleasure to have the Colonel back, one of my favorites and a friend. Colonel Layton, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon and welcome. Thanks, Leslie. It's always good to be with you. You know, I am seeing online over and over veterans and coalitions of veterans condemning the president and his continued attacks uh, on the Army and specifically on Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. I am not a member of the military. I am not a veteran. I've never served as you have, Colonel. And again, thank you for your service. Um, you, um, as a colonel, as somebody who has lived and breathed the U.S. Air Force for, for the better part of three decades, um, are you with these veterans and these coalitions that condemn the president and his continued attacks on this Army officer simply because it looks from where I'm sitting for telling the truth, for testifying against him, the president of the United States. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm absolutely with the condemnation of the president in this case, because, uh, you know, the military uh, serves not only the president, but serves the entire nation. And, you know, just in terms of being uh, in the command structure, it is absolutely critical that the president of the United States not engage in these kinds of uh, activities, this kind of uh, subversion, basically, of the system that, uh, you know, that, that has, uh, you know, created such the, uh, such a cloud over, over Lieutenant Colonel Vindman. Uh, there is no need for that. Uh, the Lieutenant Colonel did a fantastic job in telling the truth, and the truth should always be honored, even if the truth is unpleasant. And, you know, anybody who goes through the military knows that sometimes the truth is not going to be the kind of 
message that one wants to hear, but the truth is necessary. And if we dispense with the truth, we get into a situation where uh, we can't trust anybody. And uh, the military is based very much on an ethos of trust and an ethos of being able to not only get the job done, but being able to get the job done for all the right reasons. And that ethos is, is being undermined by the president's actions. Uh, Absolutely. When I talk about disgruntled veterans, a coalition of more than 1,100 veterans have condemned the president for his continued attacks on that Army officer who testified against him in the impeachment inquiry, noting that military rules bar the service member uh, from defending himself publicly. Can you speak to that? Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman cannot, uh, because of military rules, uh, defend himself publicly. Is that correct? Yeah, that's basically correct, because the president, as the commander-in-chief, has a special place within the military hierarchy. So what that means is, not only is he the supreme leader, in essence, of the military, and that goes for any president, uh, but uh, anybody who is attacked by that person, if you defended yourself in a public forum, uh, you would be going against the president, and the military, especially military officers, are expressly prohibited from attacking the president while they are in uniform. And that's, uh, that's something that, uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize, because uh, while we defend everybody's freedom, uh, many of our personal freedoms are actually held in abeyance while we are serving in uniform. I have to say um, that it, it just blows my mind Listen to what one of the veterans said. The president should know that despite taking aim at one army officer, officer, to your point, Colonel, he has targeted anyone who currently wears or has worn the uniform. Uh, This was part of the veterans' uh, open letter. Our service members and veterans deserve the confidence of knowing that our elected leaders will come to their defense just as they remain vigilant for ours. What blows my mind, Colonel, is that you, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, and others have fought for this very freedom to be able to testify in a court of law, to have the freedom of speech, to testify or to speak out even against the president, even against the commander in chief over all of the military, correct? Absolutely. And, you know, the other thing that we have to keep in mind, Leslie, is the fact that uh, Lieutenant Colonel Lindman was responding to a lawful subpoena from the Congress of the United States. And uh, in my service, I've served as a congressional liaison. I've dealt with inquiries from Congress over the years. I, you always answer those questions that a congressman and their staff uh, pose to us uh, in the military as honestly and as forthrightly as you possibly possibly can. And luckily, I had an environment that I lived in uh, while I was serving that allowed me to do that, allowed me to answer things in a truthful way. I, In this case, in Lieutenant Colonel Lindman's case, it's pretty clear that that is not uh, so in the current, uh, with the current administration and with the White House. And that is a very serious uh, blow, not only to uh, Colonel Lindman, but more importantly, to the entire structure of of the federal government and the way in which the military serves that federal government. It's, it's a very serious issue uh, that really needs to be looked at uh, very carefully. And anything that is done against Colonel, the Colonel Lindman in the form of retribution uh, or anything like that will really damage the ability of the military to carry out its missions. I truly feel this was retribution. I mean, the lieutenant colonel testified before a House committee last fall. He did it against the wishes of the White House. 
was dismissed from his post on the National Security Council on February 7th. Now, administration officials initially called the move part of a routine downsizing of the office, although almost everybody who testified against Trump got removed, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, demoted or fired. Uh, Trump later had blasted Vimin as a subpar worker, may have leaked government secrets. Two questions here, Colonel. One, obviously, you are allowed when there's a subpoena to testify uh, before House committee such as this, even if it's against the wishes of the White House. Is that correct? And then two, do you agree with me that this is clearly retaliation? Yes. Uh, you know, I'll take the last one first. It is absolutely retaliation. Uh, yes, the National Security Council uh, is being downsized. But uh, to take someone away from the position of being the top expert on Ukraine uh, from the National Security Council, when that is, in essence, the flashpoint between Russia and the United States, uh, that is, you know, just blatantly wrong. It's it's absolutely the, the worst thing to do. And, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, being able to um, to respond to congressional subpoenas, uh, you have a legal obligation to respond to those subpoenas in spite of all the fancy uh, legal uh, footwork that you saw being put on by uh, the president's counselors. Uh, that is not the way it's supposed to work. In the military, you have an obligation to answer all legal and lawful subpoenas. And uh, yes, you testify even if the White House doesn't want you to. And that's, uh, you testify honestly and truthfully, and that's really the bottom line here. The attorney for the lieutenant colonel, for Lieutenant Colonel Vooman, publicly denied uh, the charges that the president has claimed, uh, called the dismissal a personal attack, to your point, in agreement with both you and I and so many others, um, uh, by the president uh, against this man. What further upsets me, Colonel, is that this is an honorable serving military officer, a hero who also fled his country, his, you know, at a young age, three years of age with his parents, um, who, who knows what it's like to live in a tyrannical society, um, a dictatorship, uh, authoritarian regime. And his parents sought other coming to the United States. And, and on top of that, they are Jewish. Um, does this discourage going forward people in the military from doing the right thing, from complying with the subpoenas that are issued to, to telling the truth out of fear of retribution like this because they've seen what's happened to the lieutenant colonel, to lieutenant colonel women? Absolutely. The, the, there's a, a real possibility that uh, the way uh, – people will handle these kinds of situations in the future uh, will be quite different because of that fear of retribution, Leslie. And, you know, what we're seeing here, I think, is, you know, to, to your very valid point that uh, Colonel Lindman and his family fled oppression in Ukraine. They came to the United States because of that oppression, because at that time Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union was notorious for quashing dissent, for making sure that people did not speak out. We don't want a system like that here. Uh, you know, the president, while he's the commander-in-chief of the armed forces, is not a dictator. He is not an autocrat, and we can't let him become one. That becomes the real essential focus of, of what we need to be doing here, because in a democracy, 
truth needs to be spoken to power. And if people like Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, uh, people in similar positions in the future, don't have the ability to speak truth to power, we really risk becoming an autocracy. And that is something that we cannot afford to have. That means that our democratic experience and our democratic experiment uh, has come, in essence, to an end. And that would be a tragedy not only for the United States, but for the entire world. And we can't have that tragedy. Colonel, is there any way that the Army, uh, the Pentagon, the Joint Chiefs could have pushed back against this decision, which is clearly uh, retribution by the president, by the White House, by this administration? It becomes really difficult for those who are, uh, you know, serving, uh, say, as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs or as the chief of staff of the Army. Uh, you know, on the one hand, uh, you know, we have to give credit to the chief of staff of the Army, uh, who has actually said uh, there will be no retribution against uh, Lieutenant Colonel Lindman. Um, and what they get caught in is that, uh, you know, basically a bureaucratic uh, situation where the National Security Council is being downsized. Uh, the White House can easily claim uh, that this is part of a normal process like they have, and then uh, the Pentagon can't really be seen to be questioning those claims, at least they can't question them openly. Uh, so it becomes difficult. But what we have seen is that former military officers uh, have come up forward and said, uh, Colonel Lindman has done great service. This includes the former Absolutely. chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and uh, those people are the ones that can really speak out in his favor. And, and already have. Thank you. And thank you, Colonel, for taking the time today. Colonel Cedric Layton, 